Good evening. Take your Bibles. Turn to Daniel chapter number 11. You may not be aware, but I preached down fire from on high this morning. Somebody told me that that light caught fire this morning at the end of the service. <clears throat> so you're more blessed than you knew you were. Daniel chapter number 11. Remember now that Daniel chapter 10 through Daniel chapter 12 make up one climatic prophecy. In the first 35 verses of this chapter, there are 135 prophecies that have been fulfilled and collaborated by history. When one looks at the predictions of Daniel chapter 11, and see how accurate and detailed and totally fulfilled these prophecies were, you're forced to make a choice. Either we believe that they are from God or we come up with some other answer. Some liberal commentators say that Daniel could not possibly have written this book because these prophecies are so accurate in their details that they conclude that this book could have only been written some 400 years after that time by someone else who put Daniel's name on it. Through archaeology, however, the skeptics have already been proven wrong in that copies of the book of Daniel have been found dating from before the, specific, the skeptics say Daniel was ever written. I believe the matter is forever settled when we understand that Jesus himself affirmed that Daniel wrote this book when he laid claim to it in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 16. The 11th chapter can be divided into two sections. In verses 1 through 35, the fate of Israel in the first 69 weeks of her prophetic history is described and in verses 36 through 45 we see how Israel will suffer under the Antichrist during the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy. Remember that in Daniel chapter 9 we, did, we talked about Daniel's 70th week and how <clears throat> 69 weeks, weeks of years have already transpired and now we're in that interim period between the 69th week and the 70th week, a period of time which to this point is over 2,000 years, which we call <clears throat> the church age. Let's look at the prophecies in the, verse 35, the first 35 verses of chapter 11, the prophecies of the coming king. I should say kings, plural, the first 35 verses of this chapter deal with world events that will occur during the almost 500 years before Jesus was born. For Daniel, writing in 530 B.C., it was prophecy. For us, it is history as we look backwards. These prophecies obviously do not include all the kingdoms of the world but only those kingdoms which affect the nation of Israel. 
First of all, in verse 2, there's the prophecy concerning Persia. And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than them all. By strength through his riches, he shall stir up against the realm of Greece. So four more kings would rule Persia after Cyrus. The fourth would be the richest, and that would be Xerxes the first, or Aduharis, as we also know that he is named. He is the king who married Esther. The mighty king, of verse 3, who would stand up against Alexander, is Alexander the Great. Xerxes led Persia to the pinnacle of its power, but he also invaded Greece, which led to a continuing conflict, which led to the downfall of the Persian kingdom. There are several other kings after Xerxes, but they are passed over without mention, and the prophecy moves on to the next significant ruler. And that concerns the prophecies concerning Greece in verses 3 and 4. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. And when he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided toward the four winds of heaven. But, none, but not among his posterity, nor according to his dominion, which shall, he shall rule. For his kingdom shall be uprooted even for others besides these. So we have in verses 3 through 5 a prediction of the reign of Alexander the Great. However, Alexander's reign is very brief. He died at the age of 33. His kingdom was divided, but not to his heirs. He had one illegitimate son and one legitimate son who was born after his death. He also had a brother who was mentally retarded. Shortly after Alexander's death, all three of those people are murdered. Alexander's generals fought over Alexander's kingdom and eventually divided it up four ways. That's what it's talking about when it says divided toward the four winds of heaven. It was divided into Macedonia, Asia, Persia, Egypt, and Syria. Two kingdoms eventually emerged out of Alexander's former kingdom. The kingdom of the Ptolemies based in Egypt and the kingdom of the Seleucids based in Syria and Babylon. For almost for almost 300 years, those two kingdoms fought against each other, and poor Israel was right in the, in the middle. If we look at the map that shows those two kingdoms, we can understand the prophecies concerning the conflict between the kingdoms of the north and the kings of the south. In detail, chapter 5, verse 5 through verse 20, detail the history of that 200 years of fighting between the king of the north and the kings of the south. The map makes it pretty clear as the, to the significance to Israel because Israel was geographically right in the middle of those two kingdoms. So when those two kingdoms fought against each other, poor Israel was in, right in the middle. When Egypt attacked Syria, they had to go through Israel. And when Syria attacked Egypt, they traveled through Israel. 
I want to give you a brief synopsis of the events during this long period without reading every verse of this chapter. It is pretty long and involved. History tells us that alliances were attempted between the king of the north and the king of the south. The Egyptian-Syrian alliance took place in 250 B.C. and was to be cemented by a marriage. The grandson of the king of the north was to marry the daughter of the king of the south. Ptolemy II offered his daughter, Bernice, to the grandson of Seleucus, Antiochus II. The only thing is that her father, Ptolemy II, demanded that Antiochus first divorce his current wife. Laodice, which he did. Of course, that made her very angry. However, after only two years of marriage, Bernice's dad died back in Egypt. So Antiochus quickly remarried his first wife, which, however, was not a good move. He declared, he declared then Bernice to be his concubine. However, his ex-wife was carrying a big grudge toward her husband because he had ditched her for the younger Bernice. Soon after the remarriage, his ex-wife, now wife again, poisoned him and his son and killed them and all of their entourage. Meanwhile, as they say in the TV, meanwhile back in Egypt, Bernice's brother has become the new king, and when he hears of his sister's murder, he invades Syria, he kills the wife of the king, and he defeats Syria. The soap opera continues for the next 60 years. 60 years later, the king of Syria tried the same thing. In 193 B.C., Antiochus III gave his daughter Cleopatra to the Egyptian king, Ptolemy V. Understand that this is the first woman named Cleopatra, not the one you're thinking about. This was the first Egyptian queen named Cleopatra. The famous Cleopatra who consorted with Mark Anthony and Julius Caesar was a descendant of hers and actually she was Cleopatra VII, and there will be a test at the end of this. But when the first Cleopatra got to Egypt, instead of influencing her husband towards Syria, she fell in love with her husband. Terrible thing happened, and she became a supporter of Egypt. So the plan didn't work. Now, look at verse 17 to see how Daniel predicted this. Says he, the king of the north, will determine to come with the might of his entire kingdom and will make an allowance with the king of the south. And he will give a daughter in marriage in order to overthrow the kingdom, but his plans will not succeed or help him. So you can see why skeptics who do not believe the Bible could understand that this is so detailed that it would be hard for them to believe that this is truly prophecy. His demise is described in verse 18. After this, he will turn his face to the coastlands, and he shall take many, but a ruler shall come <clears throat> and shall bring the reproach against them to an end, and with the reproach removed, he shall turn back on them. And then he shall turn his face toward the fortress of his own land, 
but he will stumble and fall and not be found. <clears throat> Finally, we come to the final king of the north. This is Antiochus Epiphanes, which in essence he is saying, I'm Antiochus the God. Humble man to his core. He says, first of all, about his character in verses 21 through 24. What we're going to see as we look at Antiochus Epiphanes and then at the Antichrist is that Antiochus will be a forerunner of Antichrist and he will have many of the same characteristics as the Antichrist. But the Antichrist will be much, much more evil than Antiochus. It says, in his place shall arise a vile person to whom they will not give the honor of royalty. Point being, Antiochus was not supposed to be the next one in line to be the king. He shall come in peaceably, but he will seize the kingdom by intrigue. So Antiochus is not the next in line to be the king, but after the death of his brother, Seleucus IV, he gains the throne through intrigue against his own brother. It says in verse 22, with the force of a flood, they shall be swept away from before him and be broken and also the prince of the covenant. And after the league is made with him, he shall act deceitfully for he shall come up and become strong with a small number of people. He shall enter peaceably even into the rich places of the of the province, he comes in telling his other brother that he's there to help him gain the throne. But when he gets there, he ultimately takes over the throne. And he shall do what his fathers have not done, nor his forefathers. He shall disperse among them the plunder, spoil, and riches. He says that he was pretty good at giving out the gold and the silver to those who supported him. And he will devise his plans against the strongholds, but only for a time. In verse 25, we begin to look at the career of Antiochus Epiphanes. First of all, we see that he, he invades Egypt. And in his initial invasion, he is victorious. He shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a great and mighty army. But he shall not stand, for they shall devise plans against him. Yes, they shall eat of the portion of his delicacy, shall destroy him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. Antiochus invades Egypt and is victorious. Unfortunately, he doesn't stop, having gained that victory. In verse 29, it says, And at the appointed time he shall return and go again toward the south. But it will not like, be like the former or the latter, for ships from Cyprus shall come against him, and therefore he shall be grieved. History says that Antiochus took his army against Egypt, but this time, just as he arrives in Egypt, the army arrives from Rome in ships. The commander or the general or the Roman general met with Antiochus and told him, you need to take your troops and you need to go back home. Antiochus said, well, I'll have to think about it. And so the Roman general took a stick and drew a 
circle around Antiochus. And he says, as soon as you leave this circle, you need to have made your decision. So he, being the wise man that he was, gathered up his army and went home. Unfortunately for Israel, he was not happy. He wanted to take it out on somebody. Israel was available, so he took it out on Israel. It says in verse 30, and in, ray, in return enraged against the holy covenant, he's talking about people of Israel, and do damage. And so he shall return and show regard for those who forsake the holy covenant. We find out that Antiochus did his very best to Hellenize or make the, all of the people of Israel Greek followers, following the Greek gods, speaking the Greek language, and, and doing away with the Greek custom, with the Jewish customs and followings of the land. So he returns to his own land, but he was humiliated. He took out his rage and spite on the Jews. Antiochus is said to have massacred tens of thousands of Jews. He defiled the temple. He erected an idol in the temple, probably of Zeus, and he sacrificed a pig, an unclean animal, on the altar. The suffering of the Jews under Antiochus Epiphanes, however, was just a foreshadowing of their greater suffering under the sinister figure that we're going to be looking at now, and that is, of course, the Antichrist. The transitional phrase for us is found in verse 35. You might underline it, until the time of the end. Beginning with verse 36, the entire scope of the prophecy of Daniel 11 changes. Everything in verses 1 through 35 covers what we, would be history to us. However, beginning in verse 36, we arrive at a section that now covers the events that are still future. If we look at a figure of that, we once again look at the division between the 69 weeks and the 70 weeks. The first 35 verses describing that 69 weeks, then there's this 2,000-year interval, to this point at least, uh, of the gospel age, and then there's one seven-year period, the 70th week yet to come. So in Daniel 9, we were introduced to that prophecy of the 70 weeks. Those first 35 verses dealt with the fate of Israel in the first 69, and six, verse 36 through 45 tell of Israel's suffering under the Antichrist. As I already stated, 135 prophecies in the first 35 verses have been fulfilled with amazing accuracy. There's every reason then based on what we have seen of the accuracy of those prophecies, to believe that the prophecies that are found in the rest of the chapter will be no less accurate in the future. I'm afraid that the skeptics may find themselves much like a story I read. Dr. Schuler English once told of a man on, a, on, on Long Island who was finally able to satisfy a lifelong ambition by purchasing a very fine barometer. When he unpacked the instrument, 
he was dismayed to find that the needle appeared to be stuck on the barometer, stuck on the section pointed and marked hurricane. After shaking the barometer vigorously, like we do sometimes when something doesn't work, the man wrote a scorching letter to the store from which he had purchased the instrument and on his way to his office in New York the next morning, he mailed the protest. That evening, he returned to Long Island to find the barometer missing. His house was also missing. There had been a hurricane, just as predicted. Now look at the kingdom of the Antichrist. The focus of these verses are on the person that Daniel calls the little horn or the prince who shall come. Notice what Daniel reveals to us about this coming world leader's character, career, and his fate. First of all, let's look at his character. The Antichrist will perhaps be one of the greatest military, political, and economic geniuses who have ever lived. Now, if you look back, you'll find all down through history that there have been scores of men who have been forward, put forward as the Antichrist. Uh, none of them were. We don't know who he is, but we can know what he will be like. First of all, verse 36 tells us that he shall exalt himself. Then the king shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god, shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods, and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished for what has been determined shall be done. Well, as I said, while some aspects of this prophecy seem to fit Antiochus, the passage as a whole seems to speak of a king who will be even larger and a more complete version of this prophecy. Now, there is no clear shift that makes the transition from Antiochus to this still future king. Once again, though, I believe we see a near fulfillment in Antiochus' epiphanies and a far greater fulfillment that is yet to come. So after the church is raptured, there will be a seven-year period of terrible tribulation. Daniel's 70th week, a seven-year period. That's when the Antichrist will distinguish himself as a world leader. He will, work, he will rise to world dominion by declaring himself a man of peace. But he will also be later responsible for plunging the, war, the world into a global war. During the first half of Daniel's 70th week, that is the first three and a half years, he will pass himself off as a man of peace especially in regard to Israel, with whom he will make a seven-year covenant, but he will break it off at the middle point of that seven-year period. He will control the global economy, and he will force his followers to receive a mark on their hand or on their foreheads. That's found in Revelation chapter 13, verses 16 and 17. Most of the world will willingly receive that mark, but those who do not receive the mark 
will be hunted down and many of them will be killed. But eventually, his true character will be revealed. Jesus refers to this time in Luke chapter 21, Mark chapter 13, Matthew chapter 24. And John the Apostle describes that terrible time, that period of time in history in Revelation chapter 6 going through chapter 18. Jesus says in Matthew 24 this about him. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, whoever reads this, let him understand, for then there will be great tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor shall there ever be. Unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake they shall be shortened. Now, you've already run across that terminology, the abomination of desolation. The abomination of desolation was the term that was used about what Antiochus did in the temple in Jerusalem. And Jesus now says there's going to be a second, more intense, more important abomination of desolation. This time, where Antiochus set up a, an image of himself, or set up an image of Zeus, the Antichrist will set up an image of himself and demand that it be worshipped. He will exalt himself. He will persecute believers, according to verse 36 and verse 37. It says he shall neither regard the God of his fathers nor the desire of women nor regard any God for he shall exalt himself above all. Well, first and foremost and generally, this means that he will show no regard for any religious heritage, whether it's Jewish, Christian, or Muslim. The ambiguous phrase in verse 37 that he had no regard for the desire of women is taken by some to mean that he is a homosexual. However, many commentators believe the desire of women does not have anything to do with his desire for men or women. It has to do with what all Jewish women wanted most in the world. A good Jewish woman wanted to be a mother. And being a mother, she wanted to be the mother of the Messiah. So it may be that what he's talking about here is that he's talking about Jesus and that all Jewish women desired the honor of bearing the Messiah. Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians 2.4, speaking of the Antichrist, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Just as Antiochus did before him, he will set up an image in the temple, this time of himself, and demand that it be worshipped. It is not true, however, that he does not worship anything. The Antichrist does worship something. He worships power. It says in verse 38... But in their place, in the place of the gods, he shall honor a God of fortresses, a God which his fathers did not know. He would honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. Thus he shall act 
against the strongest fortress with a foreign god, which he shall acknowledge, and advance his glory, and he shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. So he worships power, military power specifically. And his career there is outlined for us beginning in verse 40. Verses 40 through 44 give us a very compressed account of what may be called the Armageddon campaign. It is often called the Battle of Armageddon, but that is not strictly true. It is a military campaign involving many armies, many battles, and hundreds of millions of soldiers. The various battles will range over a vast area of a land, but it will center in the Middle East. These verses describe an invasion of the Middle East by the Antichrist and his armies. He will invade the Middle East. He will conquer Israel, breaking his seven-year treaty with Israel. He will conquer half of the city of Jerusalem, and he will try to exterminate the rest of the people of Israel. But God will protect them. His fate is outlined in verse 45. And he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious high mountain. Yet he shall come to his end and no one will help him. As the Antichrist prepares for war, he sets his military headquarters near Jerusalem between the Mediterranean and the Dead Sea. Revelation 16, 16 tells us that he will gather the nations of the world together to make war against Israel at a place called the Hill of Medigo. The Hebrew term for the mountain of Medigo is Har Medigo, which comes into the English as Harmageddon. I want to share just a little bit with you about uh, the whole issue of Armageddon, the prophecies concerning Armageddon. The staggering dimensions of this conflict can scarcely be conceived by man. The battlefield will stretch from Medigo on the north to Edom on the south, a distance of 600 furlongs, approximately 200 miles. It will reach from the Mediterranean Sea on the west to the hills of Moab on the east, a distance of almost 100 miles. It will include the Valley of Jehoshaphat and the plains of Estron. At the center of that entire region will be the city of Jerusalem. In this area, the multiplied millions of men, doubtless approaching 400 million, will be crowded for the final holocaust of humanity. The king with their armies will come from the north and the south, from the east and the west. In the most dramatic sense, this will be the valley of decision for humanity and the great wine press into which they will be poured the fierce wrath of the Almighty God. If we were to look at the participants at Armageddon, we would see, first of all, a European uh, confederacy. That is the ten-nation confederacy under the control of the Antichrist. We see the king of the north. Ezekiel chapters 38, 39, and 40 refer to this as, the Go as Gog and Magog. 
This confederacy will eventually join with the Arab states of the Middle East. The king of the south is an alliance of all the Arab nations. And the kings of the east is the Asiatic peoples from beyond the Euphrates. The progression of Armageddon goes something like this. First, there is an invasion by the northern confederacy. Great movements of troops into the coming conflict of Armageddon will begin with the invasion of Palestine by the king of the north and the king of the south. This movement is described in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. It has been suggested that this will probably happen in the middle of the seven-year tribulation period. The invasion by the armies of the Antichrist. Because of the invasion of Palestine by the kings of north and south, the Antichrist will enter with his army, acting as Israel's protector. Because the Antichrist had entered a seven-year covenant with Israel. This part of the campaign is outlined in our text tonight, Daniel chapter 11, verses 40 through 45. Then there's the invasion by the armies of the east. Revelation chapter 16, 12 reveals that, that some kind of a supernatural event is going to occur, which will bring about the removal of the last restraint, which keeps the armies of the east at bay, and that is the river Euphrates. That river will be dried up. And lastly, there's the invasion by the Lord and his armies. But before the battle can even really begin, it says in Matthew chapter 24 that there will be a sign in the heavens. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the, sun, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the heaven, and then all the tribes of earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. What this sign is has not been revealed, but its effect is it will cause all of the armies to turn from their hostility against each other to unite to fight against the Lord Jesus Christ himself. As the armies of the earth assemble for battle, they will be astonished to see Jesus Christ and his heavenly armies ascending to the earth, according to Zechariah chapter 14. The armies of the Antichrist will be destroyed, not in battle, but by a single word out of the mouth of the Lord Jesus. The Antichrist will be cast alive into the lake of fire. The returning Lord touches down on the Mount of Olives, causing a great earthquake. After touching down on the Mount of Olives, he Jesus proceeds to Petra and Basra, there where the hiding Israelite remnant is located. And then he marches on Armageddon to defeat the Antichrist and the world's armies that are assembled there. John records this is what is happening in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. It says, Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat upon him was called faithful and true. In righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like the flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except his, himself. 
and he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name was called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth glows a sharp sword, and with it he would strike the nations. And he himself will rule it with a rod of iron, and he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of the Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. John tells us in verse 19 of that same chapter, And I saw the beast, that is the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth and the armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Verse 20 says, And then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by whom he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. And these two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with a sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. I like the way that John Phillips describes this in his commentary on this passage. John Phillips say, British pastor says this and now he speaks a word and the war is over the blasphemous loudmouthed beast is stricken where he stands the false prophet the miracle working windbag from the pit is punctured and still the pair of them are bundled up and heard hurled headlong into the everlasting flames to us, you know, we would we like to understand exactly what's going to happen, have our charts and our figures all lined up to know exactly what's going to happen. I don't think Jesus is so concerned about us knowing exactly every detail of what's happening as he is to, for us to know that he is in control, that no matter how bad this world might get, and it's going to get pretty bad, no matter how difficult, no matter how persecuted it may be, he's still in control. That everything will ultimately work exactly as he said it would. And we have those 135 fulfilled prophecies to help us to understand that the things that are going to happen afterward, we can believe that they will, they will occur just as accurately and be fulfilled just as completely as those that have already been fulfilled to give us faith to believe what the word of God says. Let's bow for a word of prayer and we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you again for an opportunity to be in your house. I know there's a lot of information and uh, pretty easy to get confused over all those things. But to help us to first of all just get a broad overview of, of the things that shall happen that the day when the Antichrist steps forward, he will be able to be identified. The world, the Christian world, will be able to say, I've seen his picture. I've seen his photograph. I know what the Bible tells me he will be like. And here's the man. So that we will not be confused, that we will not be taken in, but that we will be able to stand firm 
in the truth of God's word. Father, help us as we leave this place uh, to be good testimonies for you. If we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.